This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. We all know the autistic genius stereotypes, the absent-minded professor with untied shoelaces, the geeky Silicon Valley programmer who writes bulletproof code but can't get a date, but there is another set of tiny geniuses whom you'd never would add to those ranks, child prodigies. We mostly know them as the chatty and charming little kids who liven up daytime TV with violin solos and engaging banter, but these kids aren't autistic and there has never been any kind of scientific connection between autism and prodigies, until now. Over the course of her career, psychologist Joanne Rustatz has quietly assembled the largest ever research sample of these children. Their accomplishments are absolutely amazing. One of them could reproduce radio tunes by ear on a toy guitar at two years old. Another one was a 13-year-old cooking sensation. And what Rustatz's investigation revealed is nothing short of astonishing. Though the prodigies aren't autistic, many have autistic family members. Each prodigy has an extraordinary memory and a keen eye for detail. Those are well-known but often overlooked strengths that are associated with autism. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Joanne Ruthstatz and her daughter, Kimberly Stevens, who have written a wonderful book about that incredible connection between autism and extraordinary talent. And we'll jump into it right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guests for this part of today's show are Joanne Ruthsatz and Kimberly Stevens, who are collectively the authors of The Prodigy's Cousin, The Family Link Between Autism and Extraordinary Talent. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, let's talk a little bit, first of all, to I think people, when they think of Autism and extraordinary talent for those of us who are old enough, you immediately think of something like Rain Man or you hear of other savants. How, how is autism connected with talent? So child prodigies are really interesting because for the most part, sort of unlike the Rain Man character, these kids actually aren't autistic. And so the mystery of, you know, how can a kid compose music from the car seat is, is really intriguing. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, the sort of idea that autism and extreme talent are, in some cases, connected is, is pretty well recognized. Um, we even have stereotypes like the absent-minded professor or the, you know, the Silicon Valley programmer. But the fact that child prodigies aren't typically autistic makes the connection there really interesting. And it's the one that my mom's been pursuing for 18 years now. 
Okay. And, I mean, how, but still, there's this question, though, I think about, you know, people are, are I, I'm just thinking, actually, I, I watch the show called Elementary, which is Sherlock Holmes kind of a thing. And uh, Sherlock had a case a couple of weeks ago where he came, had to deal with a young woman who was autistic. And she was being engaged or she was working at a company where her job was to manage a bunch of data. And it was a, she was the perfect person because she could memorize all this stuff and you know there wouldn't be any paper trail. So she became a character, an unwitting character in something. But you know, the, there's almost a glorification of autistic people um, do you think that's a good thing or, or not a thing at all? Well, I think that historically we've only talked about even their um, tr- strong traits as disabilities when, in fact, their abilities, and I think we've ignored their attention to detail as, it, as though it was a bad thing and their keen memories as though it was a bad thing. And mm-hmm. when we talk about them with prodigies, we talk about them as assets. And um, I think thinking about autism holding some strengths is a good thing. It seems like autism has gone through a number of changes, or at least in the public consciousness of it. I mean, there there was autism, and years ago, kids who were autistic were warehoused someplace. They were institutionalized. And then I think along came uh, the idea of Asperger's, so there was, you know, people were kind of looking at that as autism light, maybe. And then, then people have changed now so that the, the conversation is generally about the spectrum. Uh, talk about that evolution a little bit. Yeah, so the, you know, the criteria for autism, the diagnostic criteria, has changed over time in ways that it seemed to broaden the number of people who would qualify for a diagnosis. Uh, and it's, you know, as you mentioned, it's a really complex condition, and it can appear in many different ways. You know, there's the saying that, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism, which I think really speaks to how diverse you know, the group can be. Absolutely, yeah. And do you think, though, that, that there still is a need for labels like Asperger's? Well, it helps clinicians define what it is that they're dealing with and um, hopefully gives them a better insight into treatment. Now, the two of you talk about a genetic link, in a way, between autism and the child prodigies. And, and you made a distinction very early on. We were just talking, you know, beginning of this conversation, uh, that they're not autistic child prodigies quite often. So how are no. they connected, though? So the, the, um, it starts with a family link. It turns out that more than half of the prodigies have a close autistic relative. Um, and by that, we mean as close as an uncle or a cousin. Uh, and then they have shared behavioral and cognitive traits, and these are extreme working memory, excellent attention to detail, and this tendency toward very passionate interests. And the last connection has been this potential genetic link that my mom and her colleagues have found preliminary evidence that prodigies and their autistic relatives, but not their neurotypical relatives, both have a genetic mutation on chromosome 1. Huh. And how did you discover that? Well, I collected DNA um, from the child prodigies and their family members with autism and their typical family members, and then um, we sent it out to the lab, and we came back with a hit on uh, chromosome 1 on the short arm, that says that they share a mutation 
uh, with the autistic uh, individuals with their families and the prodigies. And if we ran just the prodigies or just the individuals with autism, it didn't show up. It was only when we put them both in as affected that the hit came. Now, how does the idea of prodigy square with people's idea that you can have to just put in a lot of work and that's where talent comes from is really from work that you're not necessarily born with it. I mean, you have people like Malcolm Gladwell talk about that and people who talk about it on a much more scientific basis, but that it's it's all about the 10,000 hours or whatever the the number is that people are banding about these days. What do you think about that, that, that it's, it's work-related and not so much genetics? Well, if that were true, we wouldn't have uh, four-year-olds composing from their car seats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I, I, it's I, not all work. Work's important. But um, the prodigies do it so young that there has to be an inborn um, tendency or predisposition towards a certain field. So there's nothing that any of us can do to, to grow that necessarily. It's just a random thing. Well, I think it's a random mutation we're going to find out. We have some DNA right now up at McGill where we're looking for what we're calling the resilience gene that allows the talent that's sometimes associated with autism to shine through without the deficits. But I, to become a child prodigy, you no, know, you can't just do that through work because you have to do it before you're at a lesson. And is this something you think that is going to be like a designer drug sort of a thing that will be able to give kids drugs to be able to, to spark growth in that genetic area? Well, that's not certainly my hope. My hope is that it'll develop into the better understanding of autism and hopefully better treatment of children with autism and maybe children with mental retardation too. Can you give us an example of one of the pairs from your research, one of the, the child prodigies and the autistic uh, relative? Well, the very first uh, prodigy that my mom worked with, and the, the reason that you know she had this hunch that there might be a connection between prodigy and autism is she went to Louisiana to work with a child musician who was extraordinary. You know, he was reproducing music by ear at, at two years old, and he, he'd never had a lesson. And she was curious, you know, how, how is this possible? So she did some testing with him, and you know, he had he had a, a great IQ, but it, it wasn't extraordinary. It wasn't you know one in ten million like like his music abilities seemed to be. And during the testing, he asked if they could take a break, and she said sure. So they went to McDonald's with his mom, and they just by chance bumped into his aunt and his cousin, and his cousin was autistic. And it was one of those you know classic light bulb moments where she sort of thought, wow, you know this is probably more than a coincidence. And so she's been exploring that connection ever since. Oh, go, go ahead. Keep going. I'm, I'm intrigued by this whole thing. So, I mean, how about the other side of that, though? In terms of the cousin? Well, I guess in terms of the rest of the family members. I mean, um, how they process was, the whole thing. Well, at that point, I had no idea. I just had a hunch. And so I started collecting more data and hunting down child prodigies. And as I did... Um, I found family members um, had more than half of the families had either one individual or multiple individuals with autism. And so it became very apparent that it wasn't just a fluke, that there was actual connections between autism and child prodigy. 
Uh, do the parents recognize this, or the, I guess the parents or the aunts and uncles, how, whatever the relationship is that, the, that that one person would have in common with both of those people, the autistic person and the prodigy? Well, I think at this point in time, after all these years, they do because I get emails from parents who have children with autism or a child prodigy, and they'll tell me, you know, they have other family members that have autism, and we never saw the connection before, but now that you say that, it makes perfect sense. Talking with Joanne Ruthsetz and Kimberly Stevens, who are the co-authors of The Prodigy's Cousin, The Family Link Between Autism and Extraordinary Talent. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking about The Prodigy's Cousin. This heavyweight bout is about to begin. The challenger wears white trunks with a blue stripe, and the champ is wearing, uh, looks like an examination gown from the doctor's office. And from the back, we can... Ooh, that's not pretty. Champ, what's with the crazy getup? I've got to take care of my family. Yeah, so? Well, when you love your family, you got to go in and get those important medical screenings. A lot of potentially deadly diseases can be treated if you catch them in time. So you wear the examination gown because... Because I'm a real man. Real men take care of their families and get those tests. Real men wear gowns. Okay, champ. Good luck. Here we go. <laughs> the champ's not wasting any time. <laughs> it's over. This fight is over. Champ, you barely broke a sweat. Any words for your fans out there? Remember, go to ahrq.gov for a list of the tests they need to get and when to get them. What was that web address again? ahrq.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to ahrq.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Joanne Ruthstatz, who is the co-author with Kimberly Stevens of The Prodigy's Cousin, The Family Link Between Autism and Extraordinary Talent. Do you find that the both people in question, whether the prodigy and the autistic person, that they have some sort of a connection between them, that they feel that they're that they're connected in some other way? Well, one pair are brothers, and they're very... Um emotionally connected, um, especially the boy that's the prodigy is very protective of his younger brother. Um, some of them are uncles, some of them are grandparents, as a matter of fact. Um, and I don't know that they feel disconnected, but they do say <laughs> that, how come you want to be around us? Nobody else ever wants to be around us, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, and they're amazing to be with. And does does the family enjoy getting them together? Yes, I think they do. So tell us a little bit about the chapter seven, which you have called the empathy puzzle. What do you what do you mean by that one? And or actually, I know what you mean by that, but why don't you describe that particular family? Yeah. So um, you know, historically, there was this <clears throat> belief that autism might come with a lack of empathy. And from that perspective, the child prodigies look, you know, a world away because these kids are extraordinarily empathetic. And so there's kids who've been, you know, fundraising since they were six years old, but they really love to use their talent, their ability for the betterment of others. And they're uh, just extremely empathetic in that way. But as autism research has evolved, there's newer theories including one that, that we described in Chapter 7 called the Intense World Theories, that envision autism not as a lack of empathy, but actually as 
an extraordinary amount of empathy that these these people are so sensitive and they feel so much that it actually makes it hard for them to respond as as neurotypical people might, but it's not because they're not feeling the emotion. Wow. That really turns the whole thing on its head because you think of, of autistic people as being emotionally withdrawn and not being able to make eye contact or not smiling or responding in, in ways that, as, as you're saying, neurotypical people do. Uh, how is there some evidence that that's actually true or is that just a theory at this point? There, there have been studies um, mostly using an animal model where they you know, work with mice who have symptoms associated with autism and they do different types of testing. And, and you know, it, there is some evidence based for it. And it's, it's new, it's evolving, but it's, it's really interesting to follow. Uh, how does random acts fit in here? Because you, you hear sometimes about somebody who changes dramatically when they are in a car accident or something happens, or if, if you've read Oliver Sacks' books, I'm sure you have, that there, there's some dramatic event that happens and somebody who had no particular talent one way or the other all of a sudden becomes a, a genius artist or an incredible musician or can do just remarkable things. Do they have something genetic in there that's that's turned on, that if you would have looked at their DNA before this tragic act or whatever it was happened, that you would have been able to identify a, a connection anyway? I believe so. I think that um, most people are left hemisphere dominant, and I think that the prodigies are right hemisphere dominant, and they may have had an in utero insult or um, some early... Um, damage to the left hemisphere that turned on the right hemisphere where all those fields um, are located, our music map. And we had one in our study that actually hit his head on the basement floor of a church while he was jumping over boxes. And when he came out of this concussion, he had no interest in music prior to um, receiving a, a little used guitar from his godmother a couple weeks later. And now he's composing all over the place and actually um, at the top of his field. So I think it has not only switched him over to being right hemisphere dominant, I also believe they store their memories in the cerebellum instead of the cortex as the rest of us do. Huh. At least um, we, we store our procedural memories in the cerebellum, but I think they're storing all their memories there for that particular field. So what would the difference be? How would that play out besides being a, a prodigy of some kind? Well, you use your cerebellum for your like procedural memory, like how you ride a bike. That's why you never forget how to ride a bike. So they just stronger um, neural connections there, and they they last longer. And so we have one math prodigy who says he never forgets any math problem he's ever seen in his whole life. Do you find that that there are some cases where that there's this fantastic ability, but a lack of ability to understand what it's all about? And I remember. Uh, reading a book by uh, Luria, the mnemonist, and uh, he, he talks about this guy who was a fantastic brain and had an incredible memory, but he he couldn't see logic in various places. And I remember, uh, I might, might get this wrong because it's been a while since I read the book, but he couldn't understand patterns. So if I said to you, one, two, three, four, five, two, three, four, five, six, three, four, five, six, seven, you would be able to fill in what the next ones would be. You're seeing that it's a pattern of a certain number of, of numbers that are, and it, it's going up one at a time. But if if Luria said to this patient, okay, let's start with 
317, what would the next numbers be? He couldn't figure it out. He had to start from one and work all the way up to the to the top. Uh, and, of course, that was long before anybody was talking about autism, but is that an autistic uh, representation or is that a prodigy? I believe that there are is a spectrum for autism and that some people get patterns and other people don't. But it's funny you should say that because on the um, Stanford Binet, one of the lower columns for them as a group was fluid um, pattern recognition. And, and how did that play out? Well, there's a puzzle and you see a, a group of dots <laughs> or lines and you have to fill in what the next logical uh, pattern would be. And although they scored 115, I think in the 2012 paper, most of their um, areas like working men were at the 99th percentile, which meant they were stand- going three standard deviations above the norm about, I think it was 140-something. And so um, even though they are above average for pattern recognition, it was a, def- a deficit compared to their other scores. Huh. Interesting. So that's interesting that you would bring that up. Yeah. No one's ever talked about that before. Well, I'm glad I could contribute something. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the types of prodigies that there are, because I think you know a lot of people think a oh, prodigy, so that's a musician or uh, something else. But there are, if you think of the uh, gardeners, uh, talks about the different types of intelligence, and you know you look at somebody like LeBron James when he was young, and you'd say that's a prodigy. I didn't study athletic prodigies, but go ahead, Kim. So the prodigies in this group, there are music prodigies, there's art prodigies, and there's sort of science and math prodigies. And one of the really interesting lines of research that my mom has done has been to identify sort of distinct cognitive differences between them that you know, they, when they find their specialty and it fits, it's, it's this tremendous spark. And I'll, I'll give you an example um, of Autumn DeForest, who is a in our prodigy, and her dad is a musician. He composes and he plays drums, and they started her on piano lessons, I think, when she was born. They thought she had great rhythm. You know, she, she liked it. She said it was fun. She was a totally willing student, but she wasn't leaving lessons and practicing, you know, for five hours on her own each day. But when she discovered painting sort of by chance, her, her dad was cleaning furniture, and she asked if she could try to. Just, it was Bam, you know, something really quick for her, and she started doing it for hours every day after kindergarten. She started, you know, inhaling images of Georgia O'Keeffe paintings, and by the time she was seven, she was showing and selling her art, and so that connection can really just be electric. Wow. And then you talk about a cooking prodigy as well. Yeah. Greg Grossman actually uses uh, mathematics. He does what they call gastronomic molecular um, gastronomy. Molecular gastronomy. Yeah. And so he's using math all the time to whip up new creations. Hmm. And he's opened a couple of restaurants, and he's in his young 20s now. But he's wow. been doing it ever since he was, oh, a little kid. He was six, interested in food and how they were preparing in the back kitchen and wanting his mother to buy certain vegetables. So it's always been as love. Joanne Ruthsetz and Kimberly Stevens are the co-authors of The Prodigy's Cousin, The Family Link Between Autism and Extraordinary Talent. Thank you both for being with us. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.
Did you know one in three adults is at risk for kidney disease? If you have high blood pressure or diabetes, you could be the one. I was looking in the newspaper and saw an article that said if you have symptoms for kidney disease, you should see your doctor. And I really didn't expect anything because I felt healthy. I didn't worry about my borderline high blood pressure. Turns out it was silently inflicting kidney disease. When you know, it's almost too late. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. This message is for all of you sitting in the passenger seat. And apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable. But how does it feel to be at the mercy of someone who thinks a random text is more important than your life? Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a three-ton hunk of steel. Freaky, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Let's jump right into today's Ask Mr. Dad column. Dear Mr. Dad, my wife and I have a two-week-old baby, and I've noticed that many new parents seem to spend a lot of time talking to their babies. That looks and sounds kind of cute, but I honestly don't see the point since the kids can't understand a word of what people are saying. On the few times I do talk to the baby, he ignores me anyway. How important is it to talk to the baby? And if it is important, what should I talk about? Those are fantastic questions, and I get your frustration. But even though your baby seems to be ignoring you, he's actually not, and isn't capable of engaging in witty conversation, speaking to him is incredibly important. During your baby's first three years, his brain is growing at an incredible clip, and the kind of stimulation he gets now is going to have a huge influence on how successful he is later in life. One of the best and the easiest ways to stimulate his brain development is to talk to him. Researchers Todd Risley and Betsy Hart found a direct correlation between the number of words a child hears before the age of three and his IQ at the age of three. Kids with the most talkative parents also do better on tests of reading readiness. As you can imagine, the larger a child's vocabulary, the easier it will be to get him to read later on. And the more you talk to and read to your baby now, the larger his vocabulary will be. Since you have a boy, this is especially important. Parents, in particular mothers, tend to talk more to girls than to boys. All that extra conversation may explain why girls generally do better in school. Right now, what you talk about isn't as important as how you talk. Here are a few steps to get you started. Expand and encourage. If your baby says, Baba, take that as a conversation starter and respond with a full sentence, something like, do you want your bottle? Or, yes, that's a sheep, depending on what you think Baba means. By responding this way, you're showing your baby that you're interested in what he has to say, and you're encouraging him to say even more. Identify. Ask things like, where's your tummy? If he points to it or pats it, praise him and ask another question. If he doesn't answer, point it out for him. Here's your tummy. And ask another one. Talk about differences. Point to your nose, then point to his, and then to a picture of an elephant's trunk. Tell him about how his are smaller and yours and the elephants are bigger. No, he won't understand a word of what you're saying, but that's not the point. What's important is that he's hearing your voice and is getting to know the rhythm of the language. Explain everything. If you're feeding him, 
Talk about the food, the color, the taste, how messy his face is. If you're outside, talk about the traffic, the weather, the trees, construction sites, and everything and anything you come in contact with during the day. They're all familiar to you, but to your baby, it's all brand new. Keep no and don't to a minimum. It's incredibly hard, but try anyway. First of all, those two words are very broad. If you say no or don't to your baby, he may not understand exactly what you want him to do or don't want him to do. All he really knows is that you're not happy, and too many no's and don'ts will discourage creativity and exploration. Instead, give him some details. Knives are sharp, and they aren't for babies, or it's not safe to try to put mommy's hairpins in the electrical outlets. Of course, all of your outlets are safely covered, right? But you know what I mean. Read. Make stories and books part of your baby's daily routine. We'll talk a lot more about that in future segments. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment, but you don't have to wait quite that long because you can go to AskMrDad.com and check out the website and check out more columns that we've got there, or you can go to ParentsAtPlay.com for descriptions and reviews of many, many toys and games you can do with your kids. And stick with us, because there's a lot more positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. freaks me out that some people actually go through their trash to pull out recyclables. That's not for me. Maria Inez Phillips talks about not recycling. I've got too many newspapers and magazines and catalogs in there with plastic containers and bottles and cans. In your recycling bin? No, in my trash. Your trash can is full of recyclables? No, it's full of trash. You say trash, Maria. I say rubbish. Whatever it is, I'm not going through it. I don't even know what they do with recyclables. They make more of the things you use, Maria. More newspapers, more bottles and cans. Out of a bunch of trash? I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Recycling creates jobs and protects the environment. Is that important to you? It is, which is why I put my trash where it belongs. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. See why recycling is not rubbish. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, thanks for sticking with us. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. As adults, we have a tendency to equate risk with danger, but risk is not a bad word. Healthy risk should be our ally. It helps us raise our kids and lets them develop into competent, confident people. We long to shield our children from mishaps in life. We're not in the mood for another spill, mess, or tear-filled scene that could result from kids making mistakes or assessing risks on their own. But kids need this constant series of risks to develop judgment skills and confidence. If safety is always first, children can become afraid to try new things. Fear can stop children from trying. But often it's our fears that stop them. Overprotection can be more harmful than safety in some cases. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about risk and about the importance of welcoming risk. The first step towards welcoming risk is acknowledging that we simply can't eliminate it. 
And we also need to stop chasing the illusion of total safety. It just doesn't exist. Being alive means that there's a chance that we will meet pain somewhere, sometime, no matter how careful we are. Now, again, we can't eliminate risk, but at the same time, we can't allow ourselves to be paralyzed by it either. We'll start our conversation about risk and responsible ways to encourage it in your home when Positive Parenting continues right after this. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Looks them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Check it out, it's the Terminator. Hey, when'd you get back, huh? Did you have to shoot anyone? Why are you so distant? Are you not happy to see me? So what's the deal? You gonna get a job now or what? Why are you being so jumpy? Put all that stuff behind you, okay? No one knows what it's like to come back from Iraq or Afghanistan unless they were there. Join other veterans at communityofveterans.org because we know where you're coming from. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Heather Shoemaker, who's the author of It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, Renegade Rules for Raising Confident and Creative Kids. Heather, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Let's talk about what you mean by risk and healthy risk and responsible risk and, and all that. Yes. Well, one, you know, one of my um, mottos is safety second, which is mostly um, just to get us to start rethinking um, when we always put safety first, and, and really what else is important for kids. Because there's, um, I think when we think about risk, we immediately equate it with danger as, as adults. But really risk is, is not necessarily danger. It's judging danger and taking appropriate risks. And those kinds of healthy risks can be physical, like a child um, running too fast, um, or what we think is too fast, or they can be social and emotional risks, like... Um, asking someone to play when they might say no or feeling sad over something. So the kind of risks that we need to think about, they're not all um, physical risks. Now, there's something that you talk about in the book, and you talk about a lot of things, but about uh, there's a, even a chapter that's goes called uh, It's Okay to Not Kiss Grandma. And how, how is that kind of thing, not doing something, a risk? Yes, well... Um, you know, the, the poor grandmothers of the world say, oh, you know, I just want to enfold this child in my arms. Um, it's a risk on many levels, including for the adults, because the adults, when there's greetings going on, you know, say hello to so-and-so or give grandma a kiss, there's a lot of social pressure at that moment on the adults. Did I raise my child right? Is he polite enough? Is she going to do the right thing? Do I, am I going to impress my parents or my other friends or so-and-so? So there's a lot of pressure from the parent in taking a risk to allow the child to developmentally do what she needs to do at that moment. Um, and there's risk for the child in, in um, sort of standing up for her own body or his own body at a time when there's a lot of pressure to just do what everybody wants. Um, I think 
this chapter is, is tie, it straddles two topics, and they're both important. One is about manners and social expectations and social graces and how we teach those and how we can teach them respectfully. And the other is about um, sort of basic safety and that the child, if, even if they're not in the mood at that moment or they don't like the way something feels, um, they can say, I don't want you to touch me like that. I don't want those kisses. Because really that gets into the next chapter about um, um, body safety and, and strangers. Yeah, well, let me get back to that in just a second because I want to go back to something that was uh, really interesting and, and disturbing and sad at the same time. You talked about a report that was in the journal Pediatrics that found that kids are primarily sedentary at preschool and child care settings. They're just sitting there. And the main barrier you're saying is the uh, fear of somebody getting hurt. Ah, yes, getting back to safety safety first. It, there is um, adults, when kids are in our care, and that's talking about you know parents or other caregivers at preschools and daycares, we sometimes just are so fixated on, on that safety that we, we limit the kind of play that kids need to do, even very normal play, like um, being outside, um, picking up a stick, you know, very, very basic play. Um, we do need to help kids, um, you know, not hurt each other or hurt themselves. But, for example, with stick play, we can do things instead of saying, you know, no picking things off the ground. That's a rule in a lot of places. Uh, we could just say, um, if you want to play with that stick, you need to move over here so you're not close to other bodies if the child's swinging it around too wildly. But, unfortunately, a lot of, um, a lot of sedentary, I mean, not completely sitting still, but um, it is a disturbing report. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I mean, you hear so much about the schools are canceling recesses and and in some places they're hiring consultants to teach the kids how to play. It's just, there's something off about that whole thing. And I'm not, you know, (laughs) I kind of joke about this that, you know, bruises and bumps and perhaps even some some small broken bones build character in a way. Uh, I don't want kids to be out there breaking their bones, but the the point is that they, they do need to be able to fail a little bit. Right. And I think, I think you, you put your finger on it there. I have a, a little section that just lays out, okay, what's really at, at risk here? What, what are the possible consequences? And for the kid, it's mostly a few bumps, bruises, and skinned knees, maybe tears. Maybe it's um, a feeling, a temporarily uh, scared or sad feeling. That's mostly what the child is risking. Um, and for the adult, they're also risking things like feeling guilty or feeling anxious or spending some time dealing with uh, feelings or, ba- or messes or Band-Aids, but also kind of getting the, the feeling of they can be independent and maybe I'm not as needed as I think I am, and that can be hard for adults. A lot of books and a lot of authors that we talk with and experts we talk with talk about the importance of modeling and setting a good example for your kids and doing the right thing and all that. And, and you mentioned something I think was just really thought-provoking, which is to model mistakes to model failure in a way. Ah, yes. Um, yeah, in fact, <laughs> this modeling mistakes chapter was actually in my first book, It's Okay Not to Share, and then I made a mistake, and when they said the book was too big and no one would ever buy it, we cut that chapter, and I regretted it ever since. Um, so I feel like this finally found its place in the world. Um, this modeling mistakes chapter, so many children are um, sort of shame-averse, and um, mistake-averse, and yet in order to live and grow and thrive, we have to constantly do things that might cause us to make mistakes. 
And I think especially hard for a child, maybe an only child or an oldest child, who's always comparing themselves to the adults around them who seem to be able to do everything perfectly. You know, adults can just tie a shoe and pour the milk, no problem. And the kids are always fumbling and stumbling. And if they're quite mistake-averse, it can be... It seems as if adults never make mistakes, and they feel very lonely and bad and feel like they shouldn't try as much. So when we goof up, it's okay to announce that, oops, I just spilled my coffee. Now I have to get a sponge. And just not just model the mistake. I think modeling how we recover from a mistake um, is, is essential to show kids. Absolutely, yeah. Now talk a little bit about the role of technology. I think that's something besides physical safety that parents are probably w- worried about, perhaps even more than physical safety, because there's so many horrible things that can happen because of online interactions. I guess that ultimately comes down to physical safety, but there, some people look at them as being completely separate. But talk about technology and responsible risk in that area. Yes. Well, you know, technology, I, I have two chapters on it, and one is focused solely on the adults. Because I think when we get nervous about technology, we often focus on the kids first and what's wrong with that situation. But we need to take a close look at ourselves first. Um, adults are sometimes forgetting that they're modeling technology use. It's, it's brand-new territory for us, and so we don't quite know what relationship to have with it ourselves. I think some folks our age are kind of like kids in a candy shop just eating technology whenever they feel like it. It's kind of like serving chocolate cake for dinner for our kids. That, well, we model te- we model nutrition. You know, we show them that we eat vegetables and we actually do it. We need to be a little more conscious of our technology use so the kids pick up some basics that I think lead to the safety you were talking about. Um, the uh, one basic etiquette rule that we need to model um, and help kids learn is the person in front of you is the most important. So think about maybe school pickup time where there's a car line or however the school pickup happens. So many parents have the phone glued to their ears at that moment. That's a moment that we need to model respectful relationships. And I think if you have those strong relationships throughout the day that um, the technology gets put in its place and you can have good conversations about how to cope with it. And is that something that you think is is possible? I mean, I'm saying that in sort of a flip (laughs) way. I mean... It's it's so ingrained in culture these days that everybody walks around with their head attached to some electronic device. It's just, you know, how, how do you get people's attention? Yes. Well, I, I think that, you know, there's, this is not the first time that a major um, revolution of, of technology has happened. Let's say when the automobile was invented, um, people freaked out a bit, and then they had to figure out a new way of living with cars. Even if a family didn't have a car themselves, they still had to learn how to cross a busy street. So we've learned, um, you know, we've got sidewalks, we've got um, kids learning to drive at a certain age, we've got whole rites of passage associated with cars. And so we've, we've figured out how to cope with them and integrate them into our lives. I think the same thing needs to happen a bit more with technology. It's here, but we're not quite sure what parameters and, and what etiquette to, to use around it. So we've done it before. We can do it again, but it's a little nerve-wracking to be the first generation. Talking with Heather Shoemaker, who's the author of It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, Renegade Rules for Raising Confident and Creative Kids. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Heather about some more of those renegade rules. I'm Armin Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting.
Hi, this is John Androsik of Five for Fighting, here for RAD, the entertainment industry's voice for road safety. You know, style is a personal thing, and your lifestyle is your business. But if you take it on the road, it becomes everybody's business. So please, plan ahead, designate before you celebrate. Friends, don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Heather Shoemaker, who's the author of It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, Renegade Rules for Raising Confident and Creative Kids. You know, just before the break, we were talking about uh, driving and cell phones, and I just happened to come across a statistic that fits in here, uh, which I, I thought was just shocking, that the uh, over the past few years, the number of pedestrians that are hit by cars are going up. And part of that is distracted drivers, but part of it is also the people that we walk by and almost smack into on the sidewalk. Yeah, the, distracted the, the, pedestrians. Distract, exactly. I mean, those, those are the. Every time I see somebody like that, I just want to slap them, mm-hmm. uh, or at least scream, "Hey, get out of the way!" Uh, I mean, it's it's happening, and uh, yeah, modeling modeling not to right. do that is, is and a young good thing. children, you know, sibling rivalry has always always been there to some extent, but kids are now um, not so jealous of their siblings; they're jealous of their parents' phone. And toddlers are, you know, there's stories of them thro- um, throwing it in the trash can or flushing it down the toilet. They want that rival to go away. Talk about homework and how that fits into your recipe for reducing or in reducing some kind of risk and increasing other ones? Yeah, well, I think um, the homework one is mostly about reducing stress and finding time for and value, valuing um, other types of play and development. Um, so I have a chapter called um, Ban Elementary Homework, and I think the important part here is to focus on the age group that we're talking about. Um, there's been research that shows that the academic benefits of homework which is the whole reason why we ask kids to do it in the first place, are highly age-dependent, uh, much more age-dependent than we ever thought. So high school, there is an academic benefit. Middle school, not much. But at the elementary level, they found that there's no correlation between the time spent on homework and academic achievement. And this is looking not just one study, but a, a whole kind of meta-analysis over 180 peer-reviewed research studies. Of finding no correlation um, with the kids doing homework and academic achievement in school. Now, this matches up to what we know about child development, that there's so much more than just that academic cognitive side. Kids need to be um, doing big body play. They need to have physical movement. They need to work on their social Mm -hmm. skills and just what we call old-fashioned play or downtime or just being with family, that emotional nurturing. That's all hugely important. And instead, what we're seeing is homework coming at younger and younger ages. Um, It's certainly common in kindergarten now and even um, quite common in preschool Uh, with the belief that it's good for the kids. But what really the kids need more is a break from being told what to do so that they can spend their valuable time on other activities that they don't get to do during the school day. Now, another homework-related thing you talk about is signing 
papers, and I'm, I have done that a number of times. I mean, probably constantly. You know, the kids come home with something, some sort of a test or some other kind of document, and we have to sign it. Yep. Yeah, I have a chapter called um, Don't Sign Here. It, it seems to be a burgeoning uh, lately. You know, in the, in the old days, there were two things parents signed, um, field trip permission slips and report cards. But now there can be this deluge, you know, music practice sheets, spelling lists, reading logs, um, computer online assignments, all sorts of things. And if you have more than one child, that's multiple signatures and initials a day. But I think we need to get back to why is this even um, happening? And it's, it, I think it, it undermines that trust relationship, um, the trust that the child will do it if they said they do it, and the trust that they even care about their learning. But it has to sort of be marked off that, yes, you've done this. Um, there are other ways that we can support that learning and trust that the child's learning. But really, what, what's so bad about a signature? I mean, you're just signing something. You're not telling you know, the kids that they don't have to do the work. So, so one thing about the signature part is that, you know, um, homework besides academic benefit is supposed to teach kids responsibility. And one thing I think requiring the signature does is undermine that responsibility side. When a child is old enough to get homework, which in my view is middle school because that's when it has academic benefit to a slight degree, then the child should be the one responsible for remembering and doing it, and you shouldn't have a third party signing off that they did it. That, that undermines the whole point of the responsibility of it and, and that the uh, assignments are 100% the child's responsibility then. Um, you know, if a teacher is demanding a signature, um, it's fine to talk to them about it. There's been families, um, our family has spoken up and not had to sign. Other families that have spoken up unquestioned the practice have sometimes got the whole class removed from being able, from having to do the signature. So sometimes one voice can raise an issue that teacher never even thought yeah. um, might be a problem. You know, you talk about something, it's actually rule number 14, don't banish ogres from books. And I just love that chapter because <laughs> I've always always maintained you know, that, that scary stuff in books is not a bad thing. And if you think about things like where the wild things are and pretty much everything by Roald Dahl, there's lots of scary stuff going on in there. But it's teaching kids in a way that they can deal with a scary thing and they can come out of it okay. And and that's such an important lesson is that you can't shield our kids from everything and even stories. I mean, people want to stop reading stories because they want to have everything be fluffy bunnies and unicorns. Exactly, fluffy bunnies and unicorns. Um, I think that, uh, it, yeah, and it's not just the scary ones but also the sad stories. I just heard this week from a, a parent in New York City who said that her friends aren't even reading Charlotte's Web anymore because the spider dies, or they're changing the ending so Charlotte doesn't die to protect their kids. This is what I'm talking about, this degree of, of shielding of, of healthy risk. It's a healthy risk to hear a ha sad story. But what you mentioned that where the wild things are and things like that, Roald Dahl books, um, these stories have a lot of difficult kind of ugly elements in them, but they're books. And the child can cope with it at a book level. What we seem to be doing is um, sanitizing the books and yet exposing kids visually, whether it's movies or video games or that sort of thing, to almost anything. So when, when actually it should be the opposite, because when a child hears a story or a, a, a book's read to them or they read it themselves, they will take the level of scariness or sadness that they can cope with. 
they will imagine what they can handle. But when the visual image is presented to them, they don't have that choice, and it's often too much and too stimulating. You know, another thing we try to shield our kids from is the news, just turning on the TV, or hopefully not not the TV, but they're going to pick things up, just conversations that they overhear. Exactly. Yeah, um, news disasters are hard to know uh, what to do when you have young kids in the house. Um, I was reading just this week um, about how to, how to deal with the political news and, and uh, the presidential elections and how to explain all that to your kids. So whatever's in the news, is a disaster or not, kids pick up a lot more than we think they do. Maybe we're trying to shield them from adult concerns, but they do pick it up. And a lot of times, even very young kids, preschool age and, and older, can um, get a lot of misinformation and, and come up with some unfounded fears. Maybe they caused an earthquake or whatever it might be. So it's good to check in with them um, and talk about things. Find out, ask a few questions, find out the level of their knowledge or their misinformation. And then um, answer questions honestly, because if a child's old enough to ask, she's old enough to get an honest answer. Right. Well, of course, there's images, though, that you were going to want to keep the kids from. I mean, certain kinds of war images and things like that, especially for younger kids, right? I mean, that's you're not going to yeah. just go whole hog and, and open it all up. Right. And I think um, visual images, let's say the TV news, you never know what's going to pop up next, but also it's often repeated. You know, so the, they'll show the scene, and then they'll show the scene again. And at least younger children, they they might think that the disaster's happening again and again and again. They don't understand it's a replay. So that can be worrisome also. So if you had to sum it all up in a couple of sentences, besides the, the wonderful the sentence that it's okay to go up the slide, what would you tell parents as far as how to reevaluate the way that they're doing things and allow a certain amount of responsible risk. Yeah. Well, I think I think at some level we feel in our gut that things aren't quite right. So if something's bothering you, it's time to make a change. Whether that's that your child has gym class instead of recess or that these battles over homework at the kitchen table just aren't right. Um, because just because everyone's doing it, doesn't mean it's right for you or your child, and doesn't mean it's right for child development. Heather Shoemaker is the author of It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, Renegade Rules for Raising Confident and Creative Kids. Heather, you've got a website? Yes, it's heatherschoemaker.com. Which is S-H-U-M-A-K-E-R. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.